friends, and welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, this is uh, your hostess, Karen Tate, uh, and uh, we have been on the air quite a long time here at, uh, at Blog Talk. Uh, we are in our 13th year. And I want to thank those of you uh, who have uh, been with me over the years. I thank you for your listener loyalty. Uh, It certainly means a lot. And uh, also, uh, while we're uh, thanking folks, uh, just a shout-out to uh, that band from across the pond uh, called uh, Be Optimistic uh, for that little snippet of... um, their, their music uh, in that single is named Maria, and uh, that's actually in honor of uh, the Sacred Feminine or Mary. Uh, so thank you uh, for Be Optimistic. So tonight uh, we have uh, returning to the show uh, Jack Dempsey, uh, writer and editor. Uh, he'll be with us tonight uh, again. He hasn't been here for a few months, but we're glad to have him back. He's going to be discussing uh, Native New England and Marymount, or um, how a Native uh, woman mothered America's first uh, English poetry. And I think that should be an uh, interesting little uh, change of pace. And uh, for those of you who... Um, don't uh, remember Jack. Uh, he was with us earlier in the year. Uh, I'll introduce you to him uh, by way of his bio. Uh, Jack became a writer and editor in New York Publishing, and uh, his novel about Minoans called Ariadne's Brother came out in 1996. Jack earned his Ph.D. at Brown University in Native and Early American Studies. So he's kind of going back to his roots here, it seems. Uh, He's produced four recognized books and two films about them, including uh, Mystic Fiasco, uh, How the Indians Won the Pico War, uh, with painter uh, and archaeologist David Wagner. And he keeps on building uh, the multimedia learning resources at uh, his collaborative website called ancientlights.org. So, uh, Jack, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Karen. I've missed you over these months, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be back with you and your audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I recall, we had some uh, we had some technical difficulties last time you were going to be on the show, some sort of blackout or something on the East Coast, and uh, uh, that, is my memory right on that? Isn't that what happened? Yeah, I've been laughing since that it's too bad they had to shut down the entire East Coast just to interrupt me. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. Well, we've enjoyed your previous uh, interviews, and uh, for listeners who uh, uh, didn't catch those, they can, you know, just put in the search box, uh, Jack Dempsey and Minoans, and uh, you'll catch uh, a couple great interviews uh, I had with Jack about the Minoans because uh, Jack is actually uh, living on Crete these days, and uh, the Minoans is uh, one of his uh, passionate and pet projects. Uh, but tonight, um, I, it, it would seem, Jack, we're going back to your roots then, right? Uh, one of your early interests, uh, Native and Early American Studies. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when I back when I was 25 years old and uh, going to New York to begin what I hope to be a career as a writer, I I really wanted to know 
Western tradition uh, from the ground up. So that meant getting to know Native uh, American history and all that stuff, but also the Minoans. So I kind of have a foot in uh, on each side of the big water, as you might say. Uh, and these are interests and in, uh, publishing subjects that have well obsessed me, yes, as you say, for I think almost 40 years now. Well, you know, when there's a, there, in a way there's some parallels, uh, I guess, in the sense that, um, uh, you know, I think uh, most Americans, uh, what they know about Native Americans is probably not very much. Uh, and, uh, you know, or what they, they think they know is, is some sort of brainwashed, sanitized uh, propaganda rather than, uh, you know, maybe the truthful uh, history of, uh, you know, the life of Native Americans once the pilgrims hit the shores uh, of North America, and likewise the Minoans. Um, they're, in, to a certain extent, they're a bit of an enigma too, aren't they? Oh yes, very much. But you know, as you, as I listen to you, I'm thinking, well, here we are on a show called Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and with your summary of the way history has treated both of these groups of peoples, Native Americans and Minoans. I mean, the thing that jumps out in common between them is honor and respect and listening to women. This is, you know, the centerpiece, the, the linchpin of both their civilizations was the participation and the powers of women in their societies. And our history has taught us to just chop off our right arm, you might say, uh, in order to be, believe some fantasy about men and their progress myths and so forth. But these peoples have been around. The, the Minoans were the longest uh, continuous period of Western civilization still on record. And the Native people uh, have stories that go back before the Ice Age. So they're older than Europe. Yeah. Well, and, and probably and by association, uh, you know, what you just said, also, too, by association, not only did they honor women, but they also honored nature. Uh, it, and, uh, again, something that uh, has been lost in our contemporary culture. Sure. I mean, the Native American New England word, okasu, for woman means giver of life. So woman is the, you might say, intermediary between the human community and the natural forces all around them. Again, uh, a native shaman that I used to work with many years, he just said, I don't understand this. He says, why don't you just cut off your own right arm and see how well you do as a civilization? Why this kind of root ontological sexism that, that disenables most of the good things about being alive? Uh, it, it's so true. You know, I have been reading uh, <clears throat> a few books by this uh, psychologist and visionary. Uh, he's deceased now. I think he actually died in the 80s by the name of Eric Fromm. And uh, he talks sure. about, um, uh, you know, the fact that we live in a uh, having society uh, but it wasn't always that way, where we had to own things. And and he said one, and, and you know, he talks about in there. Uh, it was interesting to hear a man from his time period talk so much about this. I guess, but you know, he talked about how 
uh, you know, it, it wasn't always this way when, you know, women were marginalized and women were subjugated. And he said, uh, but even but when you think about it in a patriarchy, even the poor man owns something when he has a wife and children. And what a sad uh, statement in a way that is. I mean, it, it was an accurate observation, but it, it saddened me a bit that um, that humanity, men, whatever you want to call it, that uh, you know that they would have to uh, own their children and own their wives to have a sense of uh, of, of wealth. You know, um, we, we're we're pretty messed up. <laughs> Uh, when, when, you know, when you think about how, you know, religion and patriarchy has brainwashed people to um, just distort, um, you know, the, the value of both genders, obviously. Well, there's a, there's a very wonderful feminist scholar named Max Dashu, D-A-S-H-U. Uh, you'll find a lot of her wonderful works online. Uh, and she, in a recent review of different terms for matriarchy or matrifocal cultures, she's looking for the right term. And what she comes down to is matriculture. And that simply means a, a, an idea of human being that is sourced in where life comes from, the earth, and from women, right? Now, these, are, these cultures on both sides of the water, again, we can, we can definitely show that their concept of being was a stewardship Stewardship, taking care of something that's been brought, handed down to you in trust that you in turn will let go of to the next generation, right? But look how poorly we've done since we supposedly improved that stewardship into an ownership society. Stewardship, right. they were around and they're still around. But ownership, we, we, we just don't take care of things, not even our own children. Well, and, and, and let's remember, too, uh, in these earliest of times, the thought of uh, owning the land was a crazy concept. You know, there really you know, wasn't a sense of, uh, of ownership of things uh, like started to happen with, you know, and then with ownership comes paternity, and with paternity comes the need to, control women's reproductive health and life. Uh, I, I mean, you know, it, it's sort of a domino effect, isn't it? You know, as soon as we start to decide that um, things are ours uh, and, and, and we own them. Uh, but, you know, it, everyone, you know, across the globe for all time, you know, that hasn't always been the norm. No, and in fact, the, the problems that we're facing today are a direct result of having departed from those norms. Uh, the, the context out of which patriarchy comes are so much older, so much more almost global in their grasp and understanding of things. Even what we've come to call science was, was well advanced before men ever took control. But you hit the nail on the head. It begins with whose children are whose. In a stewardship society, a matriculture, the children belong to everybody. They're everybody's responsibility. But once they privatize this gene pool, you might say, men worrying about whose kids are whose, now you start to divide societies into the elite, the working middle, and the absolutely poor and slaves. 
this is an objectification that, well, began again with women, because if you don't control her, you can't understand who the kids' fathers are, and it all unfolds from that. It's a fundamental mistake that we're still recovering from. We may not. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and, and also, too, uh, you know, this idea of legacy, you know, uh, to have to, you know, to have to leave that legacy and you want to make sure you, you know, you leave it to your real flesh and blood children. Um, you know, you've got to keep it in the family, so to speak. I mean, look, the ancient Egyptians even intermarried uh, to keep the bloodline pure, Um you know, I mean, I love the ancient Egyptians, but not, you know, they, they had some of their, pro, you know, some of their own problems. But, you know, this, this idea of uh, hanging on to power, owning everything, uh, you know, it, 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 and it, it's really gotten us in a bad place. And, you know, Eric Fromm, you know, it, as I uh, sort of move forward, um, you know, trying to create this new normal that we talk about, you know, it's not like we have a multitude of um, examples out there uh, readily at hand to give us fresh ideas about what that new normal can look like. Uh, so I've really been interested in his writing because he gets into more about shifting from a having society to a being society. And, you know, where, where uh, consumerism and marketing uh, is no longer um, what the world is about, you know. I mean, he actually talks about um, uh, humans today don't know themselves and they probably don't even know what they want or what really makes them happy because they're, so, they're constantly being brainwashed uh, by television and, you know, all of these other different messages they get telling them what they want or what will, what will make them happy. And so, you know, we just, uh, you know, we're just these brainwashed consumers led around, uh, you know, by the nose by advertising when you think about it. But it makes so much sense, doesn't it? I mean, he even said that when it comes to ourselves, because we have to go out there and sell ourselves to be able to get a job and to be successful out there in the world. You know, you have to become a commodity that someone wants to hire, that, you know, we even become who potential employers want us to be rather than even be ourselves. So is it any wonder we have a hole inside of us, you know? I don't know. I just, I just love it. I think it's brilliant, and I, uh, you know, I, I've never had anybody actually write it so succinctly before. But it makes such perfect sense. Well, a show that we did a while ago on the great poet and feminist historian Barbara Moore uh, brought out the idea of, of what you're talking about is that once we got this delusionary, and I mean delusionary, idea in our head that we were going to somehow separate from the animal kingdom, from nature, even from uh, previous historical periods in order to generate this, again, delusion called progress. We gave up everything that this world and this life have to comfort us. The Greeks here say, live for today because you don't know tomorrow, right? 
And it, right. what it means basically is that, well, we're living in the eternal now. The now is all we really have with the seasons, the turns of nature cycling through the now, right? And as this great historian Henri Frankfurt of, of uh, France, I believe, was uh, historicizing the emergence of kingship, he says the, the key linchpin of this history was the move into the Israelites' mythology and view of the world, in which now the, the culture, the king, the religion are conceived, here we are again, as separate somehow. So suddenly, from Canaanite religion or from my money in Native America, we're cut off from all the different kinds of comfort, celebration, medicine, uh, natural healing. We're cut off from all the different direct satisfactions against which life can comfort us uh, in in the face of death. And instead, we're given a group of abstractions that really have nothing to do with where we are or I think what we even want to be. So uh, to sum up, I'm just saying that, again, you've hit it on the head to say we're living in a new time when there are new generations coming out of the studies by people like Fromm that are talking about, well, doing the historical digging to find those examples, those norms that uh, were much healthier and hence lasted much longer, but that yet we have yet to get back into our mainstream educational system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I apologize if it sounds like we sort of went far afield there. You know, maybe we did a little bit. Um, but, you know, I've been uh, – I, I have a wisdom circle group that I meet with every month, and one of the topics we just can't seem to get off of is alternative history. And by alternative history, you know, we mean, you know, uh, history that we've never been taught, you know, that's not really accepted as mainstream history, Um, uh, you know, things that have been maybe deliberately hidden from us, uh, maybe even stuff that uh, you're, you know, if you think it might be true, people might consider you a conspiracy theorist or something. But, you know, when I think about the Native Americans, for instance, you know, and it makes me think about, um, you know, an an essay I wrote once, and it's in my Goddess Calling book about separating truth from um, uh, you know, from uh, from falsehood, you know, truth from myth, I think is what I called it. And you think about the Native Americans, and just just think about the Thanksgiving holiday, for instance, and the, that sanitized uh, idea that that they have sold Americans on what Thanksgiving was about. You know, um, it, it it's it, and you know, you think about people like. Um, uh, Howard Zinn, uh, who wrote, uh, you know, it's kind of like the everyman's uh, version. I forget the title of, uh, title of the book in, in, in the second, but it, it, it's, it's not history written by the conquerors. It's more the history of the United States written by the average person. Uh, you know, the poor guy, the black guy, the uh, the immigrant, as opposed to the, you know, the captains of industry, so to speak, who had the power to write the story the way they wanted to write the story. And, you know, whenever I think of the Native Americans, I feel like, you know, what uh, what a shaft they got. and And how sad it is that so many Americans, 
you know, don't really know their true story, don't know, um, you know, how maybe the the Iroquois women influenced our founding fathers, you know, when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, and, you know, don't know about the uh, pilgrims who gave the Native Americans uh, blankets with smallpox. And, you know, even though if it hadn't been for the Native Americans, those pilgrims would have starved and died. Uh, and maybe they would never have established any colonies, and maybe it would have been better for, you know, all of the Native American tribes across the continent. Well, if you want to talk a vast right-wing conspiracy, I, I invite anyone to simply spend about a week in the local best library they can get to and just read 19th century American history. All the things that you just talked about are cobbled together out of bits and pieces by nationalistic uh, Harvard-educated historians, uh, George Bancroft, Francis Parkman, and so forth. And they had what you can only call, I'm sorry for the pun here, a savage approach to denigrating, dismissing, covering over all these different kinds of uh, beginnings in which the Native people were absolutely foundational to their success, but they, they just can't handle it, you know. It, it, it's yeah. just too much for them, so they invent these incredible fictions that reverse reality, but we're still suffering from that. It's literally true. I just want to add that tonight, though, in some of the things that we have to talk about, uh, we're going to see that this was not 100% the case. There were people who could see, even back then, that there's something wrong here. We've got something backwards, and if we don't get it right, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, those voices were snuffed out like the Native people, but again, through first-rate scholarship being done by people all over the world, uh, these things are being heard again. And, with, and the threat to them is, to sum up here, the threat in them is, if you begin from their stories, you get one idea of what's human and normal and successful, from which then, as I said, we have departed. And it was a big mistake. It puts everything we think we know into a whole new light that, well, if we don't accept it, we're not going to make it because the principles we're on do not work. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's get to that. Um, you know, and, and, and uh, again, you know, I mean, there, there, there's so much to unpack here. There's so many layers to it. And, um, you know, you probably just kind of got me on a pessimistic day, Jack. <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, it it it's it's uh, sometimes it's it's so hard uh, to see everything that has happened and is happening, uh, and uh, and keep yourself vibrating on a higher level. But I'm going to let you help us all tonight, uh, you know, and, you know, tell us some of the good stuff, you know, some of the people who actually, um, you know, were trying to do the right thing. So anyway, why don't we start by um, you sharing a timeline uh, and some essentials of uh, what it was like in the Native uh, New England world, and, and tell us what states you're kind of talking about when you when you say the native New England world, so we kind of get a picture in our mind. Sure, I'd be glad to. I'll give you about a minute here, and I'll try to paint that as visually as I can. Uh, if people, as far as picturing the region goes, uh, would just kindly imagine the states of Maine, 
New Hampshire and Vermont, south below that, side by side. Then the long rectangle called today Massachusetts with the great elbow and arm of land called Cape Cod sticking out into the Atlantic. And then the two smaller states uh, just south of it, Connecticut and Rhode Island. Uh, those one, two, three, four, five, six states uh, comprise the territories of the peoples we now today call native New England. And uh, they've been there since at least the last ice age. The problem with the great glaciers, that the Wisconsin glaciers that melted away about, began to melt about 13,000 years ago, it scours and scrapes the land raw and just removes almost every kind of human clue uh, possible. So that's roughly where we begin. But their memory, their folk stories and so forth, they even remember tales of walking from, let's say, the Rhode Island area out into what's now the Atlantic to a place called Nantucket, which is now an island, to visit their family members. Uh, so they remember periods where when the ice was still around, the ocean level was much lower, and uh, native New England had about, I think it was 250,000 square miles of extra land that is no longer there. Okay. So, so if uh, you start from that kind of a – go ahead, Karen. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Uh, take, it, take it where – where you feel it needs to go next, you know, um, uh, you know, it, okay. I mean, what, what, what was it like then? You know, what were some of the norms and the trends, uh, you know, f uh, you know, in, in the first hundred years of, uh, you know, European contact? Well, uh, I, I would like to stress that, well, the, the, the native peoples that were encountered by the first Europeans who were coming over to hunt whales and to trade for furs and do their fishing and so forth, these native peoples had thousands of years, hundreds of generations of memory and interconnection and wise ecological practices that they had learned. Uh, so they were in every sense a civilization unto themselves by the time the Europeans showed up. As I say, they remembered back to the Wisconsin ice sheets. They had named places all over the landscape based on the uses and the characteristics of those places. Uh, Archaeology now divides them between, let's say, the paleo pioneers, the first human beings known to be in this region, starting about 12,000 years ago. Then we go into uh, a period that subdivided three ways called the archaic, where you have extremely advanced tool making, uh, lots of cultural invention uh, of the peoples who were hunters and gatherers still in the region. And then up to about 1000 BC or BCE, we enter what we call the woodland period where native people began to settle into what are called agricultural based villages and uh, uh, began to mix their old hunter gatherer ways with a rhythm, <clears throat> excuse me, a rhythm of movements around the landscape. Uh, in order to let their corn gardens and other agricultural uh, territories rest and regenerate so that they could feed, you know, a lot of new people. We're talking finally about a population uh, somewhere between 100 and 150,000 uh, native tribes here in New England uh, by the so-called historic period. And these peoples are organized into uh, a, a confederacy, called the Wabanaki, which involved tribes like the Penacook, the Massachusetts, the Wampanoag, the Narragansett, Pocumtuck, the Nipmuc, the Pequot. Um, some of those names are famous through American history and literature, 
but uh, we often don't realize, again, the depth of their memory and the degree of their interconnectedness that was all, well, very hard learned through many, many centuries of experience here. Yeah, I, I don't think most people realize um, the, the, the breadth of, uh, of civilization that the Native Americans have. You know, uh, I think probably most people think about what they see, um, uh, you know, on television, you know, maybe what Hollywood has depicted. And, you know, you maybe see a few little teepees and, you know, uh, 30 or 40 uh, Native Americans and uh, you know you, you just don't get the sense that you know they had these these thriving cultures yeah that's true that's true uh, and that's part of well the 19th century and before it uh, conspiracy of historians to kind of erase that uh, one guy a guy named Moses Coy Tyler who was a, a Protestant minister and a then college professor, as most of them were, he simply dismissed them as uh, fierce, dull bipeds standing in our way, people who lived in mental childhood, he said, that just deserved to be swept aside for this great project uh, that he was deriving, I'm sorry to say, from the Bible. So they brought over a text that had nothing to do with their natural or human environment, uh, tried to impose it every way they could, and explicitly the, the agenda behind this finally was a little word that we all know well, uh, too well really, profit. They said, look, as we get to know these people, and I'm virtually quoting here, they said, as we get to know these native New Englanders and the other Native American peoples, what we're finding is how happy they are with almost nothing, quote unquote. You know, they had each other, the landscape, everything they wanted for free and so forth. He said, if we don't re reform this nature, this state of their being, then we will lose money. We will not make a profit in, in getting them to want consumer goods, cheap clothing, tools that break. Uh, worthless, flashy decorations and so forth, but they were programmatic about trying to destroy the native self-sufficiency and to replace it with a consumer culture that benefited only them. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I might have told you um, that I took this class, uh, online class at Smith College, um, I had called The Psychology of an Activist, Women Change in the World, and uh, each of the students was to take a particular uh, activist and follow their life. And, uh, you know, from the early days when they were inspired to be an activist and follow it through to their accomplishments. And I took a Native American woman. And, it, uh, and, and so I really got to see on a level that I hadn't been aware of before just how devastating uh, America, you know, had been to the Native Americans. I mean, she talked about, uh, you know, how uh, Native American women were sterilized against their will, how, you know, when they were put on reservations, we don't think about how 
you know, after a few generations go by, not only do they lose their language and lose their culture, uh, you know, lose their spirituality, but they lose their connection to the land. They lose their knowledge of how to to live and sustain themselves on the land. And you know, and I almost and I think that's in a way by design. Uh, you know, because, yeah, you want them to end up being consumers buying your crap. Uh, and, you know, you kind of get the feeling, since they weren't Christian, uh, if they sort of just, uh, you know, faded into oblivion, that uh, no one really would have cared because they were just godless heathens anyway. Well, the the Europeans came over here with a, a master theory called monogenesis. There was only one creation of human beings. It was ours, and everybody else that we find, whether we know them already or not, everybody else is trying to be us in one way or another. So let us help them to become like us. This, again, was endorsed 50 years almost before Columbus found America by Pope Nicholas V, who, as the Europeans were hightailing at home out of the so-called Holy Land, having failed in all their crusades efforts, they started to turn westward to try to, uh, to prey, literally, on less technologically advanced uh, uh, native peoples from the west coast of Africa, and then slowly all the way across the Atlantic. I'm sorry, my okay. cats are having a big fight in here. <laughs> uh, but the but the Europeans uh, came over with this sole idea that they were the norm and that everybody else would act accordingly. The Pope said, I authorize all of you, Spain, Portugal, France, and so forth, to go over to these newfound worlds we have no idea about and to reduce these peoples to perpetual slavery and profit. Those are the Pope's words. So it was absolutely programmatic from the beginning. But tonight, uh, hitting on your feeling of pessimism, I think, again, you're going to see some examples, historically documented examples of people who tried to make it go another way, who knew better. And those are the choice points, you might call them, that we need most to recover so that we have choices now that we can believe in. This has worked and we can do it again. Good, good idea, Jack. So, so where do you want to go from here? Who do you want to tell us about? Well, we mentioned some of the tribes of Native New England as we came to know them in the historic period. There's an immense and wonderful history uh, at my website, ancientlights.org, that will lay out for you <clears throat> Excuse me, all the changes in the New England peoples and their landscape from the last ice age. But I think maybe it would be efficient if we moved into what we call the historic period, where the Europeans begin to keep some records of their encounters with these people and what they found. Um, I guess you could call them this about a period of 100 years, maybe more, where we, that we call the transatlantic. And that is to say some of the first whalers from uh, European West Coast would come over to Belle Isle and Newfoundland chasing whales and doing their fishing. And in the process of changing some of the methods of preserving the fish they caught, they would make camps along the shore. And that inevitably brought down the curious native people to see who they were, what they wanted, and how they were going to relate to each other. Now, there were a number of early bad experiences involving people of the far north of New England, uh, including Bayasuk and Mi'kmaq people. 
but they also have oral traditions that recount their many meetings with uh, Europeans where things did not really go so badly. In other words, no one was really already top dog. Uh, they were equally curious about each other. And so as they began to meet on these beaches and shorelines, share food, uh, feel secure enough to invite each other to their communities, trade, uh, sometimes there were even intermarriages that went on. So what this did in the native approach to things was, you see, the way you, well, police your community is mostly through intermarriage. If my cousin cheats your cousin in a trading deal, you can bet that he's going to hear from my mother-in-law very soon, and she is not going to mess around. She's going to take care of business, straighten out this kind of thing. And so it's family relationships that, that prevent um, endemic warfare from taking root. They had an extremely developed system of kinship. They had a deep uh, belief in the idea of reciprocity. You give me something, and I give you something, and everybody's happy. Gifting giving presents to maintain relationships, to repair misunderstandings, and uh, an acceptance of justice amongst the tribes that would function, again, to, to resolve disagreements, even uh, feuds and so forth, without massive bloodshed. So the Europeans perceiving this, here's a, a funny thing. There's a guy in, I think, 1575, a Captain Davis, who comes over to visit, and they're bringing Karen... They're bringing almost Monty Python-esque uh, techniques for engaging with the native people, maypoles, uh, hobby horses, and other cartoon-like figures that, in which English people would dress up for their festivals, music, uh, alcohol, of course, uh, feasting, games, and then gifting and the trading of goods that they both wanted. So this transatlantic period, is at least early on characterized by a few mishaps here and there, but by and large, uh, a quite cautious coexistence. I think that's Colin Calloway's phrase, uh, where they are, well, equally curious about each other, equally wary of each other, but they need each other as well for their own internal reasons. So there's a, there's a sense before the pilgrims get here that uh, you don't know who's top dog and that America, as it develops, is going to be, well, pretty much a multicultural affair, uh, okay. which has changed again by the ideology that was coming. So what, what date, roughly, are we talking about? Well, the, tra the period I've described called the transatlantic goes from, let's say, the late 1400s, where the Basque whalers and other people were coming over to catch whales and fish and so forth, through the 1500s, where a number of uh, European countries were sending over expeditions, and uh, uh, the 1600s saw England begin to take the lead in the attempts anyway to, if not settle, at least engage with and turn northern, northeastern America into a profitable venture for themselves. Okay, okay. And so, um, so what date are we talking about the pilgrims come? That's closer to 1500. I mean, what, 1492 is sticking out in my head. Well, you've got 1492, of course, as the uh, Columbus arrived, uh, stumbled into America, oh, okay. decided to come China, and then went home, uh, returning only to later capture all his slaves. The Spanish were uh, heavily involved all the way up to Chesapeake Bay, and the natives there 
who later first went to war against the Jamestown colonists, they remembered treatment, mistreatment by the Spanish, so they were in no mood. Uh, meanwhile, on the other end, at uh, the northeastern extreme, uh, even though there were many cases of contact and cooperation, uh, by the time a guy named Verrazano showed up, I think 1525, uh, he was being received very cordially in the southern parts of New England, but in the far north, where, as I said, with Bayatuk and Micmac people, there had already been trouble, they were mooning him from the tops of the cliffs over the ocean. Don't come here. We don't like you. You're not good for us. And, and keep out. So there was a, a, an experience-based difference in the way northern and southern New England were, were beginning to greet uh, the Europeans. But uh, again, anyone who was willing to engage with their social fabric in the way that they understood it should function did very well here. And that's what's going to underwrite the latest story we'll get to tonight about Thomas Morton and his ex uh, experiences with Native New England. Okay, okay. Um, and so, all right, so, so then remind me, I've, I've totally lost all sense of American history. So what, what year or do the pilgrims actually arrive? Okay, well, at what we call the end of this transatlantic period, why do we end it there? We ended around 1620 with the arrival of the pilgrims. Uh, okay. What traditional history tells us is, and has been one thing, that the pilgrims were <clears throat> religious dissidents in the midst of the Reformation in England, uh, that they were outcast or self and or self-exiled to the Netherlands uh, by the tyranny of the English government and its horrible Church of England. They got connected with enough uh, merchant adventurers who were trying to start the corporate approach to America to get themselves uh, set up to go over and try to colonize. Now, they were supposed to land in the southern realm of New England, uh, if not Virginia altogether, but they did not really know much at all about what they were doing. They ended up in uh, what we now call Plymouth in 1620, November, and uh, within a year, we see that they're, they're trying very hard to make alliances with the strongest native tribes around here in order to, again, facilitate trade. That's where the, that's where the money was. You could make 800% profit, Karen. You traded an iron uh, chopping axe or a garden hoe for a single pelt in the fur trade. You're making just huge profits, and these would finance almost anything you wanted to do. But the problem with the Pilgrims was they were under a company store operation. They, would, they were sort of set up to never be able to get out of debt. And this kind of extremized a lot of their ideological approach to the native New England people. In other words, we have to control you, not just treat you as an equal. Uh, it, that's not a certain enough relationship for us. So while the Pilgrims, as I say in one of my works called Good News from New England, while the pilgrims give them every credit for incredible courage coming over here to start all over in and then to them wild country and so forth, give them every credit for this intrepid adventure, sure. But on the other hand, what the 19th and other historians uh, have missed is that give them all that, the native peoples here owed them not one thing. They didn't owe them anything for the virtues of their Christian mission or their need to create a capitalist economy. They had their own ongoing world, and this was going to be a problem for the pilgrims the more they hoped to dominate them. Okay. So we can, we can lay uh, capitalism at the feet of the pilgrims? 
Well, no, I think that would that would well depending on how you define capitalism. As I mentioned, the Pope's decree way back in 1455. I mean, that's what he's talking about. If you invest enough capital in soldiers in the imperial enterprise, you will reap huge profits. The Spanish uh-huh. took up that model with disastrous effects. The English took it up at Jamestown, Captain John Smith, who told us, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that colony was pretty much a disaster until they got Europe hooked on tobacco. And then in New England, uh, this became a kind of a, well, as I say, company store operation. The pilgrims were caught in a machine in which they could not get out of debt without working constantly and cementing, literally, their relationships with the fur and fish trade. Uh, and so what they thought they had to do to get what they needed from native New England was, well, completely mistaken. And it led them to some huge mistakes. Uh, they made by 1621, the Thanksgiving, they were already working on a comprehensive treaty with most of the leading tribes in New England. But that one feast of Thanksgiving, uh, it happened all at once. And within less than two years, Karen, uh, the complaints from native New Englanders were so vociferous that the pilgrims lashed out and assassinated about 13 of their leading spokespeople just to try to sweep away all at once all final resistance to their agenda here on the landscape. So they piped the heads of the native people they killed on top of their church, which also combined uh, service as a fortress, not surprisingly. And then there was a wedding at uh, Plymouth the next summer, and one of the ca- a ship captain from outside of the Plymouth community, he came to attend this wedding, and he said, they can't seem to figure out why the Native people aren't attending this wedding. Well, I think it's probably the heads of their cousins on top of your church that are, that are interfering with this. So the pilgrims wow. had a real tin ear as to how they were being perceived, and they did not want to listen to anyone who knew better. But again, you're going to see that there were people who knew better and how they fared. Okay. So, so tell us about some of those folks. Well, in the early part of the period we're talking about, in the transatlantic, there were a number of explorers and would-be settlers who came to the New England area and tried to set up little trading posts. And the things that they record about Native people were that, again, as we've seen, they like to sit down. Uh, smoke some tobacco, get to know you a little bit, feel safe with you, and then maybe have some trade to go on. But they don't want to feel compelled to do any of this because in Native New England, every individual is a sovereign being. If you want to trade with somebody, that's your business. But you have to keep in mind the implications for uh, your people and their relationship with the newcomers. So as I say, there were uses of music, feasting, uh, food, sometimes into marriage, uh, and these were norms of practice, but the pilgrims did not want to really participate in any of those norms. And so on what basis could they continue a good relationship with the Native people? It just wasn't there. All they really had finally was force and the threat of force. Well, will you think about it. Well, these were, and I mean, and, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the things you just described that were important to the Native Americans were sort of taboo to these Christian pilgrims, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, that code of separation that comes down to us from the Old Testament was very much functional 
in the Plymouth community. In fact, William Bradford, one of their leaders, he wanted Hebrew to become what he called the national language. He wanted to learn and to have everybody else learn Hebrew to make their community even more biblical. Uh, but that code of separation was forbidding them virtually every one of the comforts and emoluments, you might say, that facilitated the good relations that meant good trade. They were just not willing to participate in these old norms, and it cost them terribly. One early incident, um, touching on the influence of uh, Native American women tonight, uh, there was a Native American Massachusetts woman named Passamagisset, and when she passed away, they, the Indians put up a, quote, monument over her grave, meaning some wood propped up with a bearskin uh, over it. The pilgrims, in exploring the area, found this, took it for some kind of a pagan idol, knocked it down, and defaced it. Well, this enraged the Native people against them. And there was a big fight just south of Boston here, uh, a big skirmish in the woods where both sides gave as good as they got, but the interesting thing that came down to us, besides that, is that this leader, the sachem of the Massachusetts then, a man named Chikatabak, his name means House of Fire, he had a dream. And his mother came to him in the dream and she said, these wild people, what are they doing? They have defaced my grave. You must answer to this insult to our culture. And that spawned this fight that um, Chikatabak led against the English. But eventually, they managed to make it up. This is the native way. We fought today, but we can work it out and, and get done what everybody wants. So, yeah, these, these attitudes were fundamental to the pilgrims' lack of success. They were struggling all the way up till the time, 1630, almost 10 years later, when Boston began. Uh, they very much needed business from Boston to keep themselves afloat because they had been so incredibly inept and and disastrous in their native relations. And that was the key to almost every colonial enterprise. So, you know, we've, we've heard that the Native Americans um, suffered from plague. You know, I mentioned the uh, blankets with the smallpox, and, uh, and, and, and you just talked about, you know, they got their heads on a pike uh, at the local church. I mean, how did the Native Americans deal with uh, the disease that um, you know Europeans brought, and you know their their violent nature. I mean, were the Native Americans violent, or were they? Uh, you know, did it vary from tribe to tribe, or were they pushed to violence? Well, the Native peoples here in New England had what you'd call feuds from time to time. Uh, if they were beyond individual combats, they did have little group encounters uh, once in a while, but it was never a question of pushing anybody else off their territory and removing them altogether. It was a matter of we're going to fight until we've had enough, and then we'll come to kind of some kind of new understanding. But all this tradition, all this knowledge of the landscape, their cultural memory, their families and so forth, were swept away by what a native historian named Nana Pashamit called the, the impact of a nuclear weapon. That is to say around between 1616 and 1618, a few years just before the Pilgrims arrived, a devastating plague came out of the filth of the European cities, probably smallpox, and wiped out something like nine out of 10 of the native New Englanders. 
So by the time of 1620 and 21, when the first uh, native persons, Samoset and Squanto, come down to meet the pilgrims as ambassadors, most of native New England is virtually gone. I mean, it's, again, a 90% reduction. Even so, the native people, as Nana Pashmut also points out, they are the ones who organized and orchestrated the first meeting between the pilgrims and the native peoples. They came down with their then sachem, Massasoit, with 60 armed warriors. Now, in the pilgrim village, there were 50 men, women, and children. So if the native people had wanted to wipe them out, they could have done so easily. But as, again, Nani points out uh, with a smile, he says, but they didn't need to. If they wanted to destroy them, they would have just left them alone and prevented anyone else from helping them. And that would have easily destroyed them because they really had no idea what they were doing here. Uh, So, again, here we have this complete dependency on native uh, relations for the success of the colonies, which is, well, again and again, erased from our histories because it's it's just too much to accept for some reason. Yeah. So um, why do you think – all right, so – all right, so by this point, 90% of the Native people were already gone. Did they realize it was a result of, uh, you know, this influx of Europeans? Or they didn't really connect well, those dots? Because could... cause I'm thinking, why would they, you know, why why wouldn't they just leave them to their own devices and let them die out? Well, the native tribes in New England had, as we mentioned, their own political relationships. And into the historic period, the control by one native tribe or another of most of the European trade in exotic goods, uh, metal tools, sometimes even firearms, excuse me, this was uh, an item to be coveted amongst the tribes. So there was a kind of a competition, especially between the southern tribes called the, the Wampanoags and the Narragansetts, who were old feuding foes as well as intermarried cousins, uh, for who was going to be the point man in controlling the flow of European goods into the region. Now, the Narragansetts uh. coveted that position very strongly. And so as the native Wampanoags began relations with Plymouth, the Narragansetts sent a few ambassadors in presence of their own to say, no, we're the people you really want to deal with. And so this feud between the Wampanoags and Narragansetts resulted in the sending of a sign that the pilgrims fundamentally misinterpreted. In other words, they thought that they were in a place of danger, that at any moment the native people were going to come and wipe them out and so forth. But it was really a rivalry behind the scenes among native tribes for who was going to control that relationship. But unfortunately, the pilgrims, knowing nothing, uh, assumed the worst and assumed that there was going to be some kind of a great New England conspiracy against them. So this, again, by spring, March 1623, resulted in their, quote, preemptive strike, where they invited a group of native leaders and outspoken people to a so-called feast uh, and ambushed them, killed them all, and tried to terrorize uh, the rest of Native New England with this uh, with this action to say, if you ever threaten us, this is what you'll get. And so it was a great killer of their own trade for more than a decade to come. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> it, 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 it was it was ugly. It was ugly. 
Well, yes, and it was because, again, uh, as far as I can tell, as the, the most fair-minded historian I, I can be, looking with a fine-tooth comb through the records, it was their own attitudes. And I'll tell you a quick anecdote. In the first winter, and even the second winter, when the Pilgrims of Plymouth had devoted virtually all their manpower to fortifying Plymouth, building a fence and a fort around the place to protect themselves, they still had to go out into the native landscape to beg for food, to beg for corn supplies and any other uh, means of sustenance that they could get. And on these visits, Karen, all throughout the region, the native people would say, okay, let's, we'll trade, we'll help you out. But first, we want you to listen to our complaints. One, your men are not treating our native women with respect. Two, you're stealing our food supplies, and this is what our families count on to survive through the winter. And three, this plague, this, these diseases that are killing us, uh, seem to crop up in our villages wherever you people go. So we appreciate it if you'd, well, put it back in the ground or wherever it came from, because we, we cannot handle this. And the pilgrims in record after record say, well, we just swept aside their objections and their problems. It's all their fault. And we just need to get on with getting food and getting trade going. So the more and more the Native people are not listened to, let alone uh, compensated in some ways, as I mentioned, gift giving and reciprocity was very important to them, the more their anger was rising. And so it's no surprise that they were making uh, threatening gestures toward uh, the Plymouth Pilgrims by the early 1620s in the face of their own treaties, and this horrible tragedy emerged. Now, the, another turning point, though, comes the very next spring, because while that massacre happened in March 1623, the next spring, June 1624, comes a little old Englishman named Thomas Morton from the west country of England over here to Massachusetts Bay, the very same peoples against whom the Plymouth people have had so much trouble. Morton is a landsman. He is a upper middle class uh, outdoorsman from the west country of England, very well educated in Greek and Latin texts. Uh, he went to the London's then university called the Inns of Court to become a lawyer. And then he came over to New England by 1624 when he was about 40 on a small investment. Now, as this, uh, in, as this early effort dis disintegrated, because that's what happened to most of the English efforts, they just weren't prepared, Morton himself took over this site and turned it into a trading post. But he, you see, because of his experience with nature and his very confident sense of his own identity, was very willing to go out and to observe and to listen and to see how Native people did so well in this region. So here's the, it's almost like a laboratory test. You have uh, the transatlantic period where there's this cautious coexistence for about a century. Then you have, and, and things are moving along where people speak a mixed language, they intermarry and so forth. And it's the usual imperfect human relationship. The pilgrims come over in 1620, try their Bible-based ideology on the landscape, and it results in a catastrophe by 1623. Well, Morton comes over and takes over those old methods of the transatlantic, getting to know Native people, having them in your home, uh, feasting with them, trading, even trading them guns, because that's what they wanted to intimidate each other with, Okay. And within three years, Morton is a roaring success with the very same people that the pilgrims had just murdered. So hmm. whose methods are actually going to work here? You see what I mean? It, it's almost like a laboratory experiment. Try this, what results? Try this, what results? And now we try the other one again, 
and you have a, a, a fine system that is going forward. So this gives the lie to all that necessity and uh, tragic uh, destiny that historians have sold us for such a long time. Wow. Well, in in this idea of manifest destiny too, um, is is that something that develops later on, or is is that from uh, you know the the very first Europeans hitting the uh, you know hitting the continent, uh, you know that it, it's they're entitled and it's their right to uh, you know to to take the land and move west. Well, the roots of Manifest Destiny, which is a 19th century American uh, doctrine, definitely, I would say, have their roots all this way back, right back to what we talked about before, the idea of monogenesis. There was only one creation. It came from our Bible, and everyone else wants to be us. So this is a, an attitude which is very convenient to the idea of running over Native people like a steamroller, culturally removing them taking over the landscape and so forth, uh, and feeling good about it, feeling as if you have done your bit for the crown and human progress or whatever thing you want to make up about it. But Morton, you see, was, well, he was a little too mentally sophisticated or educated to believe that. And he operated on a different principle instead. His idea was, I think I'll watch for a while how people do business here. Who does well? And those are the methods that I'm going to imitate. And lo and behold, it works for them. There's a, right, right. a quick account, uh, one, one gem of a sentence. Uh, there was a guy named Captain Weymouth who came over about 10 years before the Pilgrims, and he was just looking for the standard fur trade and so forth. And he sat down with a group of Abenaki elders up in the main area, and they said, you know, we're not really too comfortable with you people yet. And Weymouth answered, uh, well, that's okay. I would still like to be friends. We don't have to trade. And so suddenly the native elders around him look at each other and laugh and say, okay, we'll do some business now. That's all right. See, as long as they don't feel compelled and ordered and demanded on, then things go pretty well. But it's all about the attitude that you bring. And Morton was uniquely equipped to, uh, although not totally, but rather uniquely equipped to get along with and to prosper by these native ways. He was not too proud to learn something. Right, right. Well, it is an arrogance, isn't it, you know, when you think about it, because that's still sort of uh, the justification or the thoughts that uh, we hear today when we go start a war someplace uh, or, or, the, or why the terrorists hate us. You know, um, you know they, they want it, they're jealous of us. They want to be us. Um, I mean, we hear that even today. I mean, it, it seems like an idea that hasn't been uh, put to rest. Well, it, it, that's that's for sure. Uh, I, I can only say that, that the continuities to me, they, they, they haunt me every day because of the needlessness, the stupidity, and the waste of, of the tragic results of these arrogant assumptions instead of the, the native principle is, look, Shut up, contain your ego, and listen for a while. Look around for a while. See what things are around you for a while before you come charging in. But, you know, as I've just brought out in my latest book, a novel called People of the Sea, a novel of the promised land, uh, again, as usual, Karen, you've hit it on the head. In other words, the ethnocentric 
dehumanization of people whose land resources you want, this is the first step toward removing them. You have to destroy them as human beings conceptually before you can get away with it physically. And so the Bible, I'm sorry to report, is the beginning of that ethnocentric tradition. These people are amoral. They have no idea of God. Uh, They let their women participate. It's shocking. Uh, On and on and on, the amoral aspects of cultures that must be removed for progress and God's people uh, to go on. So we're, we're straddling, Karen, right now, a period that, well, for 500 years, Uh, began with the end of the last failed crusades in the Middle East and are beginning with them now all over again. Every time we seem to run out of victims, we turn back uh, geographically to this region uh, where it all began. So patriarchy continues to go in world-destroying circles. And again, uh, just so grateful for programs like yours where we can begin to get the real fact-based, documented, visible-to-yourself story out there to rediscover our human norms and to get well. We've simply yeah. got to move beyond this gesture of dehumanizing others or we're not going to make it because whatever you do to other people, you do to yourself. It sounds like a cliche, but it is historically the fact. Well, yeah, I mean, you, I, I think about how so many Americans don't even have a passport. You know, I mean, they haven't even traveled beyond yeah. the borders of the continental United States. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're so ignorant of other cultures. And, you know, this idea of all the wars we start, and uh, it just seems like, it, I don't know, that, that we can justify it because they're other. You know, they're not like us. Their God is different. Their skin color is different. They speak a different language. So they don't count, you know. I I mean, it's like we keep doing the same pattern over and over again. And, I mean, and it doesn't hurt, uh, you know, their thinking that every time they obliterate some other culture, somebody's getting rich doing it, you know. Uh, so, So they have a big incentive uh, you know, whether it be the fur trade and the fishing industry of, uh, you know, of, of those early days in, the, in, the, in America, or, you know, we're talking about oil or something today, you know, we're keeping the military industrial complex fat and happy. I mean, we, we're, we're like parasites well, yeah. on the planet. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but that word really does apply because the essence of a parasitical relationship is it's only good for one side, right? Yeah. Symbiosis or reciprocity, as the Native people told it, recognize that if you want to do well, then it's in your interest to see that your neighbors do well. Um, if we could, at this moment, as we head into the 1620s uh, adventures of Thomas Morton uh, in the midst of the Pilgrims and Puritans, I think it would really well be good for listeners to hear two things. One, a quick sample of native New England language in a prayer that they offered in many of the ceremonies, and then Thomas Morton's voice himself, because if we start, I mean, you can't chronologically, of course, but if you started with Thomas Morton's account of Native New England and hence of early America, you begin with a whole different set of principles that would lead you to a much healthier and happier place than what we got. But may I give you just a little bit of Native, sure, uh, sure, Native yeah, New England and, language? 
Sure, and I want to make sure you tell us about the maypole revel and uh, how that depended on the um, the native women too. So let's not forget to go there oh, as sure. well. For sure, we're going to get there quite directly. This is a little prayer uh, that is that comes down to us from native New England tribes in the southern region, and it asks for well-being. And here it is. I'll give you a quick line of the native New England language and then the translation. Kietanitum magunuche nash awank wachanish, O spirit that gives us our breath, watch over us. Kietanitum magunuche nichem muank wachanish, O spirit that gives us our food, watch over us. Kietanitum magunuche wichinine umonchiek wachanish, O spirit that gives us our family, watch over us. Kietanitum Magunuche wane genash, wadchanish, O spirit that gives us our happiness, watch over us. It's a beautiful, subtle language that the uh, Europeans and especially the English had a terrible time with for a long time. They just didn't have the patience to, to kind of understand it, but it really holds incredible wealth that's being recovered today by some marvelous uh, native New England scholars uh, being revived as a language. Now, well, and you did a really uh, good job with that, to too. He, uh, Jack, you did a really good job uh, with that language, too. Not that we would know if you made a mistake, but it sound, uh, sounded authentic. <laughs> well, thank you very much, and I can only say <clears throat> a huge thank you to the, the native New England peoples that, that welcomed me as a serious scholar of their cultures and history and that, that shared many things over many years uh, with me. Uh, they are the people, I believe, that are going to outlast us on this landscape. Uh, if we are willing to listen, we are welcome to come along, you know. Right. Uh, and, and I might add to that in the, in the spirit of the prayer just read, as you heard from every line, you know what the secret of their well-being is? Gratitude. Gratitude. Mm. It's an emotion that wipes out all kinds of resentment. It heals all kinds of wounds and offenses between people. Just be grateful, and your well-being will follow from that. But we seem to be grateful for nothing. We just take and take and take, and we stuff this hole in our existence that was created by our delusionary separation from all things, and we're paying the price now. So it's come to a point where these principles are so radically applied that we're destroying ourselves so we've we've got to wake up and again i'm grateful to you karen for shows like this that can get the new facts out there absolutely um okay so um so now this that prayer uh that uh, tell us again where that comes from uh we we know about it because of thomas morton but that was that was the prayer of the uh of of the native americans well, well, the native peoples. Uh, well, that was a short introductory ceremonial prayer uh, from the Narragansetts that was given to me, shared with me by a Narragansett elder during the years that I was studying with them. Uh, it's not in Thomas Morton's book, but he includes a great deal of observation about their culture, their landscape, and then becomes a just a brilliant satirist of all the mistakes that the pilgrims and the Puritans were making. Um, that second thing that I want to share with you then, uh, if you'd allow me 60 seconds, I want you to hear Thomas Morton's voice 
on the kind of person that he was and what he, how he saw uh, America when he first came over here. And if you hear in this passage uh, the spirit of his approach to America, you'll begin to understand the view that enabled him to be so successful. Sure, Shall go I ahead. go for it? Sure, yeah. Okay. He, he says, in the month of June, I salute to 1624, it was my chance to arrive in the parts of New England with 30 servants and provisions of all sorts fit for a plantation. And while our houses were building, I did endeavor to take a survey of the country. The more I looked, the more I liked it. And when I had more seriously considered of the beauty of the place with all her fair endowments, I did not think that in all the known world it could be paralleled. For so many goodly groves of trees, dainty, fine, round, rising hillocks, delicate, fair, large plains, sweet crystal fountains and clear-running streams that twine and fine meanders through the meads, making so sweet a murmuring noise to hear as would even lull the senses with delight asleep, so pleasantly do they glide upon the pebble stones, jetting most jocundly where they do meet, and hand in hand run down to Neptune's court to pay the yearly tribute which they owe to him as sovereign lord of all the springs." Contained within the volume of the land, fowls in abundance, fish in multitude, and discovered besides millions of turtle doves on the green boughs, which sat pecking of the full, ripe, pleasant grapes that were supported by the lusty trees, whose fruitful load did cause the arms to bend, with here, which here and there dispersed you might see lilies, and of the Daphnean tree, which made the land to me seem paradise, for in mine eyes was nature's masterpiece, her chiefest magazine of all, where lives her store. If this land be not rich, then is the whole world poor. So just contrast wow. that with the image of America that we get from the pilgrims, a wild country full of wild beasts and wild men ready to fill our, our sides with arrows as anything else. And it's a completely different world that Morton is in and that he brings back to us. Well, and and you know it's uh, and you said something you said it before because it when you as soon as you said it 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 like boinged off the top of my head there was this fear you know um, they seemed some of a lot of these people seemed to be a very fearful people and I, I think the reason why it 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 sort of smacked me is because I think that's still part of our problem today. You know, I think we're a very fearful people. Um, you know, we, we are still trying to, um, you know, isolate ourselves from people who aren't like us or cultures that we're not familiar with, you know. Um, something went wrong, I, I think, uh you know just in the and in, in maybe it it's at the very roots of the of the country you know like like you're you're saying um and you know and especially when you think if there's something to um and you know uh, ancestral dna you know that we carry uh trauma from generation to generation, you know, in our DNA. I mean, maybe we maybe we carry that fear too, because it seems fear is really at the heart of so many of our mistakes and aggressions and our inability to get along with people and and uh, you know come into collaboration and partnerships. You know, it's it's fear that makes people. Um, need to have power over and to dominate and exploit 
exploit. You know, of course, it's greed too, uh, but I, th- I think it's also a fear of uh, of anything that's different. Well, you know, it's it's a kind of a vacuum into which fear rushes. One of the great racist historians of the 19th century, Charles Francis Adams, remarked about the pilgrims. He said, knowing nothing and feeling completely isolated, it was impossible that their fear should not grow. In other words, they didn't know anything. They didn't want to know anything. And so they were left to their own imagination, which was structured and coming very much from the Bible, which tells you, again, to be afraid of, to despise, and to want the property, the land, the resources of these peoples who are not a member of your in-group. So I'd have to hit it a little bit harder than you did, Karen, when I say that if you look at the history of Plymouth itself, what you see in their first two years, let alone the rest of it, is that the, the first and most important thing they think they need to do is build a fortress around themselves. And it's not necessary. Thomas Morton was the first and only guy to say at the time, this is all needless. What's wrong with you? Get to know them and you'll be fine. So what they're doing, given monogenesis, given the capitalist agenda that we have to change these people so they'll want our trash goods, is a guilty conscience. They are guilty before they even act in the way that they are planning to act toward Native people. They know there's going to be resentment, even violence, and they are getting ready for it before they even lift a finger. See what I mean? They know nothing, and they have bad intentions toward these people, so fear magnifies itself within the fortress mentality, and there's no limit to what can happen out of that. Wow. Wow. That's that's some powerful stuff, Jack, you know, when you think about it, really. Um, you and know, it all comes reli- from Thomas Morton. I'm sorry to interrupt. It, I'm just saying it, 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 that's true, but it's coming from the foundational generation of people who knew better. It's not coming from some presentist uh, agenda to revise and reform the past according to what we wish it was. It's simply listening to the voices of people who were there and who saw oh, that yeah. none of this nonsense is necessary. Yeah, I get that, and and uh, I totally get that, and it 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 just um, gives me, uh, you know, a, a whole new layer, uh, you know, to lay at the footstep of the the damage done by religion and the Bible, you know. I'm afraid it's true. Uh, I think the Bible has been the most catastrophic cult- cultural move that we've ever ever made. Uh, what made it quote seem to work is the intensity of its ideology, its demand that the domestic population, your own people, must be the first to knuckle under and to get in line so that we then have a highly organized predatory system ready to reach out, dehumanize, and then conquer all these other people who, meanwhile, have been doing very well without us for what you could only call eternity because life to them is in the present with the seat, with the turning seasons uh, cycling through it, and yeah. the Bible, of course, is is nothing like that. Right, right, right. Sad. Uh, I mean, truly, truly sad. You know, because when you think about it, religion and spirituality are supposed to be about morality. You know, and um, this is something different. This this is uh, this is not that. Well, that's exactly the, the, the moral smokescreen 
that the Pope Nicholas V, again, way back in 1455, threw over the colonial enterprise. In, in the last word of his declaration authorizing all this colonization and imperialism, he says, again, you are to reduce all these peoples unknown to us to perpetual slavery and profit. Uh, and so it, it, these things are completely inappropriate as a way to approach those other people. But again, we are not interested. They will have to come to terms with us because we have guns, germs, and steel, as Jared Diamond put it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you know we're I, and I hate to say it, but we we are still suffering from that edict. In the sense that um, I I feel like uh, you know the the only thing we're good for is to be consumers, you know, um, you know, and, and everything is a commodity, and you know, so it, nothing's changed. I, I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, when, when you think about it, and you know, it, well, and, and how it, and how important is it? that we have underclasses of people so that they can be exploited, you know, for the gain and riches of others. I mean, it hasn't changed. It's just the, you know, now it's not the Native Americans. You know, now it's the brown-skinned people, uh, you know, uh, or or in a lot of cases, you know, the black-skinned people or the poor white people, you know, or women, you know, getting paid, you know, 70 or 80 cents on the dollar, depending on the color of your skin. I mean, it's it's all of these underclasses uh, are designed to, um, you know, be for the benefit of some rich white man someplace. Well, commodification is the big word for uh, another one, meaning dehumanization, reducing someone to a commodity whether it's their labor, their physical being, uh, the profit of their labor, etc., uh, reducing these things to an object within your own control is is the imperial enterprise altogether. And again, explicitly, the English and all the other European powers that came here, they were explicitly saying that is what our final agenda is about. We would not even be coming here if there wasn't a buck in it, you might say. Yeah. So anything yeah. that was in the way of that machine was going to have a heck of a hard time. But this is one of the places where Thomas Morton's experience is so important because it's so divergent from what we think was normal back at that time. See, um, one of the things bifurcating the European communities was, of course, the contrast between the Renaissance and the Reformation. The Reformation was, of course, the revolution, you might say, against the Catholic Church's hegemony and putting the Bible into ordinary people's hands in English and so forth, and the reform of churches in uh, Europe, meaning the removal of all last vestiges of pagan culture from the European pagan past. The Renaissance, meanwhile, was reviving those pagan models, the conception of the body, the definition of the soul, the idea of a cosmopolitan culture that many peoples you can expect are going to be different and that there are ways to deal with them. So Thomas Morton, being well-educated and not, you could say, a Bible pumper, although he was Christian, brings over the best essence of the then-beginning Renaissance with some simple methods. First, as we mentioned, observation and experiment. Let's see what works, and let's try this. Second, his belief in education itself gave him a model of planetary cultures where, again, you expect them to be different, not like you, and therefore you have to come to terms with them. 
Third, he brought over skills such as uh, his landsman's uh, experiences, being a, a cool-headed, seasoned hunter, a trader, uh, and a hell of a scholar, to to realize that, again, there are always new things to learn. The pilgrims, the Puritans, and these other ideologically committed peoples, they, again, had no interest in, in that kind of a model. But Morton, you could say, well, 1624, he reorganizes uh, the little trading post there on Massachusetts Bay in present-day Quincy, Massachusetts. And within three years, by using what we've called fair means, including the trade of guns to Native people, oh, horror that, right? He treats Native people as his equals, and he says so. By treating them well, I get treated well. So May 1627, he, like many other of the fishermen who were coming over before the Christian era in colonial history, he raises a maypole, an old English pagan tradition, whereby people in the spring would get together around a risen maypole and trade and have social intercourse and expo- uh, what you could say, uh, perform their different skills, music and feasting, and leading, of course, as usual, into intermarriage. So he used these old customs of music, maypole dancing, poetry, feasting, etc., to create a, a rebels in New England in May 1627, and he invited, quote, all comers, all comers, meaning French, English, Native Americans, and anybody else who's in the neighborhood who wanted to get their trade going. So his success uh, within that short period, again, gives the lie to the Plymouth model of what America was, and shows that, as he even said explicitly in his writing, that America's future was a matter of multicultural coming to terms with each other. And that's the way it was. He was adamant that uh, we had to do it this way or there was going to be a disaster. And that's what his book, New English Canaan, is talking about. Wow. Um, and so that book of his, um, is is that still something you can – I get your hands on, or uh, is, is it hard to obtain? Uh, well, it's <laughs> this is going to sound awful, but uh, I put a new edition of Morton's, the first in over 100 years, a, a new edition of Morton's book, New English Canaan, uh, out there with his complete text and all the notes that you could possibly need to understand him line by line. Uh, so his work is coming back into some good repute after – several hundred years of complete infamy where all the uh, Christian historians that I mentioned were completely excoriating him as the bad example. This is the way you do not want to behave on the Native American frontier. But uh, Morton is gaining more and more uh, respect as time goes on. So, yeah, he's available. Uh, I put him out there in many forms from film to articles, essays, web pages, and so forth. And his experience will will turn your head around in terms of well what was actually there and what was necessary uh, or not. Yeah, yeah. And and so what about um, uh, the the native New England women? Um, you want you were going to mention something about them. Uh, did they have something to do with the Maypole celebrations? Well, sure. Now back all the way into the transatlantic. Native American women were right at the cutting edge of the colonial encounter. In other words, 
probably the least threatening way that you could initiate contact with these people was to send women and children down boldly onto the beach and to present themselves and then slowly to have the women introduce them to trading partners in the native community. So this was, not, this was also true in Thomas Morton's case. It appears from some of his writings that one of his earliest encounters was with a Native American New England uh, woman who was sitting on the ground crying in grief for her many hundreds of children and fellow community members who were lost to the plagues uh, in the late 1610s. Now, Morton comes up to her sympathetically and asks her, why are you crying? And as she begins to unfold the answer, he sees that, well, you know, England, we believe, and Europe, we believe, are falling apart. It looks as though native New England, too, has been devastated. I think it's time that we pooled our resources and created something new on this landscape. So this figure of a Native American woman grieving for her children becomes the focal point for what Morton did with the rebels. And that is very quickly as follows. He created a poem and a drinking song. The poem is a visionary moment where he speaks to this native woman. You hear me okay? Yeah, uh-huh. Okay, the poem is this visionary moment. He nails it up to the maypole like a manifesto, and he addresses this Native American woman who's crying for her children and says, they're there. We're going to get it together. These wonderful new English fellows have come over to marry in with you. And by remembering each year in May how we came together, how we understand each other, and the place that we both want to go, we can move America toward a a society that is multicultural in its operations. His young men with Morton at that Uh, plantation wanted Native American wives, and they got them. Uh, And this fostered all kinds of very successful trade. So Morton's poem is, as I say, a, a visionary moment where he reminds everybody of the past that is going to enable a very positive future. And then the drinking song that he tacks on after that simply invites everybody to hold hands around the maypole, dance, drink, sing, and get to know each other. So this is a use of, you could say, uh, old English quasi-pagan traditions that would facilitate, here we are again, people getting to know each other uh, on the way to a kind of mutual prosperity. And this, he says, was nailed up on the maypole for all to see, and some of his pilgrim neighbors came, and of course they couldn't understand heads or tails of it because most of it was written in a kind of a mythological language to protect himself. And uh, they decided that this was a complete threat to their domination economically and culturally of the landscape. And so they arrested Morton the next year and kicked him out of the country altogether. That begins phase two of his story. But again, his sympathy for Native New England and his dialogue with the Native New England women were fundamental to this moment of sympathy between the cultures that would, if it had become our model, have become an entirely different United States. Wow. So they so they get rid of the guy who uh who had the only one who had any sense. <laughs> uh, right. he was he was a threat. But you know, yes, you could say that from the pilgrim point of view, but actually he wasn't because he invited the pilgrims and the puritans to these rebels as well. 
right? He was giving them a golden opportunity to, to get introductions and to make good relationships with the native people that meant their success or their failure economically. Yeah, but they didn't uh, want to. They, they didn't so, want to do that. They they had their own, you know, they they had it in their head the way they were going to conquer and rule, and it wasn't Morton's way. It wasn't going to be reciprocity and kinship, and uh, it was going to be domination and exploitation. Well, I'm afraid that's right. That was strictly according to the biblical model that they were carried everywhere under their arms. So it, June, May 1627 is the rebels. June 1628, they arrest Morton, uh, summarily without trial or any other uh, pretense of law, maroon him on a barren rock called the Isles of Shoals off the New Hampshire coast, and he gets picked up by a fishing ship. They supposedly send him home under lock and key with all these charges against him, including gun running to the native people and so forth. Well, bang, in one year, spring 1628, he's right back at Plymouth in their faces because he loves it here. And he says, what's wrong with you? I haven't done anything wrong. You proved nothing in court. The courts themselves have taken my side, and you better leave me alone. Goodbye. And he <laughs> walks back out into the landscape and takes up his old life, which is intolerable. So to finish this sort of middle chapter, that's June 1628. By the fall of 1629, the famous colony at Salem is begun to be founded. They're still struggling for native connection to prosper like everybody else, if possible, in the fur trade. But their leader, a stern bungler named Captain John Endicott, whom Morton dubbed Captain Littleworth, uh, trucked away all their corn, which would have fed them through the winter, for a quick killing in furs. So the winter of 1629, the people of Salem come down to Morton's new colony called Merrymount, his trading post, and they steal all his corn <laughs> because they're starving. And Morton says, you people have no respect for law, let alone native culture and so forth. You, you don't even play by your own rules. Well, that's the way it was. They had overwhelming violence of force, and so they took his corn and went their unmerry way. Morton continued his life, and then Boston lands, spring of 1630. And do you know, Karen, if you go down and take the books off the shelf of the records of Mass Bay Colony, the first order of business, and it's not even a trial, it's just an order from the court. The first order of business is to burn down Morton's house and plantation, scatter all his people, end this idea of living together even under the same roof with Native Americans, and they have to hoist Morton out of the country onto a ship in a cow's harness. They hoist him like a cow onto the ship in the middle of the winter and ship him out to sea. So he gets wow. back to England, looking like he says Lazarus in the painted cloth, and almost starved to death. He appeals to the English court, with which he's well-connected, and over the next few years, he wins his lawsuit against Plymouth and Mass Bay, taking away their charter, Altogether, they're very right to be there on the landscape because of their mistreatment of him and many other settlers, I may add, who also lodge complaints. So Morton wins his lawsuit, but by this time, as you probably know, the English Civil War is beginning to brew, and the government has almost no power to enforce its legal decisions. So that's where I'll leave it for the moment, where Morton spends about the next seven years composing his book of memories about Native New England and so forth called New English Canaan. 
but he's savagely unforgiving about all the mistakes that are so needlessly being made. And that's why he becomes the bad boy of American literature for the next few hundred years. Wow. And so he spends out spends the rest of his life in Europe? Well, you would think so, right? But he had already come directly back twice. Now, after he won his lawsuit in the English courts, including 200 pounds damages, which is a small fortune in those days, uh, 1637, he publishes New English Canaan. And in, I believe it's 1641, he's in his 70s now, and he still comes back to New England. He has a small charter for a place called Agamenticus on the main coast, now called York, Maine. And what he's trying to do is take many of the dissidents that are now so troubling the Puritan courts of Boston to take these people northward to a new piece of chartered land and to set up a non-Puritan settlement, which would, again, have featured maypoles, probably good relationships with the Indians and so forth. But they can't allow that either. So even though Morton is under the protection of many uh, prominent English nobles, they arrest him. They lock him in a windowless jail cell through the winter and break his health. And then, having no evidence against him whatsoever, let him go back into the wilderness in 1645. He lives about two more years up in Maine and then dies. But his book, Surprise, becomes the first book banned in Boston, again because of its point of view and their nonsense. And uh, ever since, we've been struggling to recover his story and what it tells us. Wow. Um, such intolerance, you know, but what's new? Uh, you know, so if one goes to New England today, um, is he like a, a favorite son or something like that, or is he just an obscure figure in history? Well, among different communities, he's different things. To the Native American tribes that I've worked with for many years, his book is seminal because it is one of the most sympathetically drawn portraits in its first third New English Canaan, that is the first group of chapters out of three groups. It's the most sympathetic portrait of that generation native New England that we have. He says these people are happy, they live a contented life, they have incredible skills uh, exploiting their local ecology, they have respect for women, uh, they have all kinds of traditions that, with which we can work to create prosperity. Uh, for the Plymouth people, they run a, a place called Plymouth Plantation nowadays, quote, where it's always 1627. And that's the exact year of Morton's Rebels, right, uh, about 20 miles up the coast. But you know what? They do not include Thomas Morton at Plymouth Plantation. They don't really want to know him. If you go and ask some of the interpreters questions, they'll chuckle and laugh as if he's just some kind of a silly extravagance that had to be removed for serious culture and so forth. Uh, so finally, to answer your question, uh, conservative historians, uh, they distrust any kind of enthusiasm and uh, new respect for Morton because they feel that they've figured it all out in terms of, oh, he was just after colonizing the same as anybody else. And for the progressives uh, and the left-leaning historians, he's a landmark because, again, his simple reportage of the facts gives the lie to all this propaganda that we've believed for much too long for our own good. Well, you know, it reminds me of uh, how the right wing wants to control the history books 
and take people out of it like Thomas Jefferson and, you know, any uh, dark-skinned people who have made contributions to history. I mean, nothing ever changes, Jack. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean... But, you know, that, that, that kind of... Uh, well, that's a big statement, and I think that can be part of what gets us down, Karen. In other words, though, let's realize, let's begin to realize the, the fundamental thing that is singing to us out of the recovery of these new documented histories is that things were one way, was fairly healthy, then things were changed according to an ideological agenda that had very little to do with planet Earth, and then we realized that it can be changed again. So you yep, might say things yep. never change, but when, you, when we say that, we're only, pardon me, but we're only talking about about 500 years. Other than that, those old norms continue all around us. It's a question of whether we're going to wake up to them and begin to learn from them again for, again, our own good and benefit. Absolutely, and it and it points to the fact that things were not always like this. Things were different. Things can be different. It's It's simply a matter of choice. You know, um, I mean, maybe not simply, but, you know, there there were other beacons that point to other ways of being uh, besides, um, you know, this uh, capitalistic domination and exploitation that, uh, you know, that that uh, seems to rule the day, unfortunately. Well, sometimes I wish we could have an international conference. Uh, including both right-wing, left-wing, middle-of-the-ground scholars, everybody, and get everybody to make their case for where we are in the historical continuum. And I think it would have to come out, if you're, again, living on planet Earth at all, now that a lot of our ideological blinders have dropped away, it would have to come out that, well, one method, as Thomas Morton proved, is completely bankrupt. It doesn't work. It leads to catastrophe. What are the other norms that we could recover and learn from? And that's where, for me as a historian, the Minoans and people like Morton are there to save the day. They're like the cavalry coming back over the hill to say, no, no, we, we did better for most of our human time. And it's a matter of remembering the techniques that worked and imitating them with our own right. modern, of course, modulations. Who are we Agreed. going to imitate going forward? And that is the question. Absolutely. Well, Jack, this has been interesting because, honestly, I had never heard of, um, of Thomas Morton. So you, uh, you gave me somebody else to uh, add to my list of, uh, of folks to get to know, and I, I thank you for the, uh, the thorough um, explanation of his life and his contributions. Um, we are starting to get close on time here. Believe it or not, we have uh, talked for uh, almost an hour and 42 minutes already, um, so we don't have yeah. that much longer before uh, we go off the air. So I can give you about five more minutes. Um, is there anything you wanted to uh, say that you haven't had a chance to yet? Um, I, and, and I know in your notes you had something about a film about uh, Morton's Marymount. Uh, is that something, uh, is, is that wishful thinking, or is that something someone's working <laughs> on? Well, I put it this way. In three years, 2020, America is going to be celebrating 400 years of the arrival of the pilgrims on Plymouth Rock, right? But Morton 
is literally standing outside of the fortress and the palisade and the barriers between people. And he's saying, what's wrong with you people? Wake up. There's a world of paradise out here for the having. All you have to do is respect it and understand it. So Morton's legacy, and I'll do this quickly, his his written legacy is legacy is basically four genres of what became American literature. His ethno uh, history of the native tribes, his examination of America's beauty and riches as a natural environment, and the third part of his book, which is all his satires on the pilgrims' mistakes and his poetry. His life made him America's first criminal exile and also America's first poet in English. And you know what his watchword for America was in contrast to the pilgrims, which was conquest? His watchword was respect. Just respect mm-hmm. things, first of all, and you'll do much better. Now, uh, in closing, I, I, I'd like you to hear a prayer that a native New England sachem friend of mine who just passed away named One Bear uh, composed out of their traditions. Another woman that I know named Woodall wrote a great poem, and she's asking, how are we going to educate these bio people when they will not even listen to what their own stories teach, right? Yeah. I hear some static on the line. Am I coming through okay? No, no, you're okay. Keep going. Okay, so I'll just conclude then. As I mentioned before, in the Native tradition, gratitude is the emotion, is the the basis on which all other things are enabled that we call desirable as human beings. So this is One Bear's prayer, and I think it's a a wonderful note to close on uh, with the spirit of Thomas Morton in mind. And it goes like this. Great spirit, whose voice I hear in the winds and whose breath gives life to all the world, hear me. I am small and weak. I need your strength and wisdom. Let me walk in beauty and make my eyes ever behold the red and purple sunset. Make my hands respect the things you have made and my ears sharp to hear your voice. Make me wise so that I may understand the things you have taught my people. Let me learn the lessons you have hidden in every leaf and rock. I seek strength, not to be greater than my brother, but to fight my greatest enemy, myself. Make me always ready to come to you with clean hands and straight eyes, so that when life fades like the fading sunset, my spirit may come to you without shame. Wow, that's pretty cool. I like that. Nice, very nice. So uh, one question, Jack, before you go. Um, Morton, did he have a wife? Or did he end up marrying uh, a, a, native, uh, a native woman, or do we know? Uh, in his middle years, I, I speak as his biographer, his middle years when he was still riding the country court circuit in England, uh, he used to stay at the house of a woman in a place called Swallowfield, and eventually they got married, but she passed away. And that was part of what kind of orphaned Thomas Morton enough to think that he might actually do better by following up his American investments. Uh, We do not know uh, whether he married a Native American woman or not. It it, it doesn't appear so, at least from what we have so far. But the relationships of his company at Marymount with Native American women were, again, fundamental to their success because that way they, they had enough humility and expertise to know how things worked and how to do well. Right, right, right. 
Well, this has been fun, Jack. Um, I, I like this this uh, new part of history uh, you brought to us because, uh, as I said at the opening, I'm really into learning more about the history that's been swept beneath the rug, you know, the alternative history, uh, as, uh, as I tend to call it. You know, I think that... Uh, uh, the stuff you're talking about. In fact, I'm going to go look in Howard Zinn's book, and I'm going to see if uh, Howard Zinn writes uh, anything about Thomas Morton because uh, I would think he would be the perfect fella uh, that you know for Howard Zinn to actually write about. Uh, so now, now you got me curious. I'm going to have to go look that up. But thank you so well, much, when, Jack. When, go ahead. I, I just want to mention when I was. When I was teaching at uh, Wheaton College in New England here, I met Howard Zinn, and I gave him a copy of Morton's book, the new edition that I produced, and he wrote me a letter later saying, no one has done this better. He said, Morton wow. is so completely important to our perspective on American history that it's absolutely foundational, he said. So I, w- I was very proud to, to make that contact. But I've had three contacts from companies like HBO and other movie companies over the years that expressed some interest in Morton, but it never panned out. Well, his is the story that if you remember the movie Little Big Man that tells us the other side of the Custer story, Morton's story would electrify American audiences. And so just keep your, all, all your fingers crossed that uh, we can make something like that happen. Finally, anybody who's interested in both these wings of what you call alternative history, the Minoans, Thomas Morton, early uh, America, just go to ancientlights.org, and you'll find uh, page after page of documentations on all these videos, artifacts, music, poetry, all the different multimedia ways that you'd like to come at this material. Uh, dive in by all means. You're going to love it. You, you know what? You, you are awesome, Jack. Thank you for coming back on the show. I hope my listeners do, in fact, avail themselves of all of that information you've made available. And I love the Howard Zinn story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And no doubt we will be in touch on email. And know you're always welcome back. Uh, if uh, there's another show in you, you know, if there's something else you want to share, uh, you let me know and we'll put you on the show calendar, okay? I couldn't be more grateful for you having me on these many times, Karen, and I look forward to more. I'm giving a talk this weekend in the eastern extreme of Crete about the Minoans' calendar evidences, and I really think that would be a worthwhile program so that people can see the, the incredible understandings of nature that we, we really ought to recover. Again, if we're going to ask, who are we imitating as we go forward? Those are the people that can give us a future. All right. Well, let's talk about that. Um, you know, let's uh, let's let's. It, is it something we can do without having visuals? Do you, you you don't really need to have a visual to talk about that? Uh, I think I can do it. I think I can. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we'll do it later on in the year because um, right now I'm booked up through October, but maybe we can do it around the holidays. Thank you so much for letting me be part of this, Karen, and to just share the company of so many great people that you have had on this program. And uh, more power to you as time goes on. Congratulations on your 13th year. That's a lucky number, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, we're just so happy to have this place where we can meet and talk about the new future. Absolutely. And I like that, the new future. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of that and helping to uh, facilitate and help expedite that, too. 
All right. Well, um, go back to your wonderful days on Crete, and uh, we will certainly be in touch very soon. Good night. Thank you, Karen. Good night. Well, we are almost out of time here, and I just want to say one more time thanks to Jack for uh, bringing all of that to us tonight. And we'll have him back in the fall uh, to talk about the Minoan calendar. Uh, but before we go, I have a commitment to, uh, uh, to see through. So here's a word from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you've been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of goddess as Gaia. Well, Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film, and these spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them, yourself but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and the booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. And that reminds me, I actually have a sale going on with my books right now as well. Um, For $25, uh, you can actually get uh, two of my books, uh, Sacred Places of Goddess, uh, 108 Destinations. And uh, what uh, that one does, uh, it helps you uh, plan your own uh, sacred sites pilgrimage. You can discover sacred sites of goddess from ancient sites to living traditions across the globe. Uh, that's uh, in Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations. Uh, I still don't think there's anything like it between two covers. And um, you can find out what experiencing uh, traveling to these sacred sites was really like in my other award-winning book, Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth. Right now I'm having a summer sale. You can get both books signed and mailed to you as long as you're in the United States because uh, international postage is way too expensive, uh, but both books signed and mailed to you for $25. And the way you do that is to go to paypal.me backslash Karen Tate. That's paypal.me backslash Karen Tate. Uh, you just... Um, Uh, key in $25. It will automatically ask you for your uh, mailing address and you can get both of those books of mine um, signed and mailed to you for only $25. That is a pretty good deal. Yes, it is. 
And uh, quickly, before we run out of time here, I just wanted to let you know who my guests are for uh, the next uh, two shows this month. Uh, Next week on the 19th, uh, James Olson is my guest. And um, uh, he's the author of How Whole Brain Thinking Can Save the Future, Why Left Hemisphere Dominance Has Brought Humanity to the Brink of Disaster, and How We Can Think Our Way to Peace and Healing. So uh, James is going to be talking about that. And uh, then the last Wednesday of the month, I have Raina Manuel Paris uh, with us. Uh, She just recently um, gave a talk at the Joseph Campbell Roundtable that I organized for the Goddess Temple. And uh, we're going to be talking a bit about the wonderful talk she gave there. And um, it's about love, quite frankly. Uh, We're going to be talking about the seven aspects of love, uh, as Plato and Aristotle talked about. Uh, We'll explain love as God, um, how love changed from God to romantic love, and why a woman like Eleanor of Aquitaine was important in that shift. Uh, We'll talk about her being a feminist in the 12th century and how change in our society is connected to love. And, you know, I, I, I think in a way we kind of talked about that tonight. We didn't use the word love, but we certainly used the word uh, gratitude and reciprocity and tolerance and um, collaboration and respect. Uh, you know, I, I think love kind of goes hand in hand with all of that uh, because that is the kind of society we do uh, want to shift into instead of this one of domination, uh, exploitation, where we're all nothing but, um, you know, uh, commodities and, uh, you know, consumers to someone, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, I hope you'll be with us on the 19th uh, and the 26th for those two upcoming shows. Also, please do um, go check out uh, Jack's. Uh, website and I'll give it to you again that's ancientlights.org and uh, that about does it for me for tonight Uh, dear listeners again thank you for your listener loyalty Uh, remember one of our mottos uh, what you nurture what you focus on well that grows and thrives and what you neglect that withers Uh, that can mean an awful lot of things uh, and you know different aspects of our life so you know give that some thought Uh, focus on the things that you want uh, to grow in abundance and give less attention to those things that uh, no longer serve you Um, okie doke well uh, have a great summer stay cool Um, and I hope you'll be back with us next Wednesday uh, with James Olson Uh, good night Uh, Have a wonderful weekend, and uh, I'll leave you with a little bit of music here from Celia called Bringing in the Light. Yeah, bringing in the light, been in the darkness for too long. Yeah, bringing in the light, bringing in the light by the way of the song. It's the love that gives, turns to happiness. Bringing in the joy, bringing in the light, bringing in the I'm dropping the worry, I'm dropping the shame, I'm dropping the guilt, I'm dropping the blame, I'm dropping the walls, I'm dropping the windows, dropping the doors. 
I'm dropping who's wrong, I'm dropping who's right I'm dropping my put em up and fight I'm dropping the roof, I'm dropping the porch I'm dropping the floors And I'm bringing in the light I'm dropping the plot, I'm dropping the twist me up in knots I'm dropping the past, prevailing over what's in store I'm dropping the scarcity of enough I'm dropping that constellated stuff I'm dropping the points, I'm dropping the game I'm dropping the score And I'm bringing in the light Been in the darkness for too long Yeah, I'm bringing in the light 